Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is John Michael Greer, the author of 24 books in the fields of alternative spirituality and future studies. They include the new Encyclopedia of the Occult, The Long Descent, A User's Guide to the End of the Industrial Age, and Secrets of the Lost Symbol, which has been translated into eight languages. He is also the author of a popular weekly blog on the future called the Arch Druid Report. He was born and raised in Washington State, and John Michael and his wife Sarah live in Cumberland, Maryland, in an old red brick mill town in the Appalachians. Today we're going to explore his latest book, Apocalypse Not, Everything You Know About 2012, Nostradamus, and the Rapture is Wrong. <laughs> so welcome. Welcome, John Michael. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. It's a pleasure to have you because I really enjoyed your book and I was so looking forward to this interview. I happen to be a history nerd and this was right up my alley. Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> Let's start with the notion of apocalypse. Mm -hmm. What are the characteristics that define this religious and cultural meme? Okay, basically... An apocalypse is, is set apart. Well, let's start with the word. The word itself is is from Greek. It comes from a, a root meaning um, to unveil, to reveal, to to make visible something that wasn't previously known. And of course, it got that name from the last book of the Bible, the the Book of Revelation, which which claims to offer the real skinny on what's going to happen in the future, and has been the template that most people have used for their their apocalyptic beliefs for most of the last two thousand years in the Western world, at least. But what, what, what defines something as, a, as, a, as an apocalypse is an interesting question because, I mean, the terms used very, very broadly. A, a, you know, a disaster happens someplace. There's an earthquake. There's a tsunami. People say, oh, it's apocalyptic. But that's not actually what the meme is about. I mean, bad things happen all the time. The thing that makes the, makes the apocalypse meme, the thing that feeds that meme and makes the idea, gives the idea the emotional power that it has, is that it promises an end to the frustrations, the, the, the um, uncomfortable details, the, the ordinary humdrum reality of a regular life, and promises to replace that by something that bears a suspicious resemblance to whatever our most emotional appealing fantasies happen to be, whether that's a new age of peace and love and enlightenment on the one hand, or whether it's um, getting to watch every, the, the annihilation of everybody who ever made fun of you in elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where do you think this whole thing came from? Well, one of the interesting things that came up in my research on the book, actually, is that you can actually trace the apocalypse meme back from, from its, of course, worldwide contemporary spread, step by step through history, to a single source. As far as I've been able to tell, as far as some of the, the, the researchers who blazed the trail here have been able to tell, the entire idea was, came, was come up with, with by a single person, and he was Zarathustra, the founder of what's now known as the Zoroastrian religion. Uh, Zarathustra lived in what's now Iran. Um, nobody's quite sure when, but it may have been sometime around the 13th century BC. And he was one of the very first monotheists in history, one of the first people to think that there was one and only one deity. And he also seems to be the one who came up with the idea that sometime very soon, his god was going to strap on his hobnail boots and basically beat the, 
the stuffing out of everyone who disagreed with, with him, Zarathustra, and prove that Zarathustra's religion was right and everyone else's religion was wrong. And when that happened, everybody who agreed with Zarathustra would go on to paradise, and everyone who disagreed with Zarathustra would be plunged into rivers of boiling metal and various fun things like that. It, it seems like a very logical thing these days. I mean, when practically every religion, well, no, but a lot of religions in the world at any rate, are, are retailing that as part of their, their sales pitch. But at the time, nobody else had that idea. And if you watch the spread of the idea outwards through history, you can see where Zoroastrian missionaries went, where people came into cultural contact with Persia, as it was then, or with other places that had been contacted by the Persians. The idea spread with them. It, it was fascinating to me to make that connection between mm-hmm. the Persian Empire and mm-hmm. the uh, the Judaic thought, the, the Mosaic uh, mm-hmm. notion of one God. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the Jews tend to feel that they have a, um, a patent on the idea. <laughs> no, in fact, scholars have shown, realized a long time ago, that the Jewish, the Jewish national religion wasn't even monotheistic until relatively recent times, historically speaking, not until after the Babylonian captivity. I think it's Raphael Patai who did a very interesting book called The Hebrew Goddess, where he talks about the, the polytheist folk religion of, of ancient Israel and how that gradually mutated into a monotheism under the influence of the Persians. You got to remember, it was the Babylonians who basically, who you know, after they conquered it, conquered the kingdom of Judah, uh, force marched a lot of the surviving population off into exile in Babylon, and it was the Persians who liberated them. Mm-hmm. So the Jewish people had had plenty of reason to be grateful to the Persians, and as so often happens when you have a militarily, culturally, politically dominant power rising up in a region. A lot of its ideas get picked up by a lot of the other peoples in the area, the same way that rock and roll and blue jeans have been adopted by so many people in the world a long ways from the United States. So in the same way, this, the, the idea of, of monotheism, the idea of um, a whole system of, of religious taboos about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat, that, that was also a Zoroastrian thing. All of these things found their way into Judaism there's very little evidence that any of them existed there before, again, before, before the return of the exiles from the Babylonian captivity. But, of course, they were very solidly in place shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, because the, uh, the Jewish law had always been an oral tradition, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until the time of Ezra, Ezra the scribe that it was actually written down and codified. Exactly, and that was in the first generation after the Babylonian mm-hmm. captivity at the period of maximum Persian influence. Fascinating. Fascinating. You know, there's a lot of misunderstanding um, to, to skip <clears throat> a few millennia. Um, there's a <laughs> lot of misunderstanding about the Mayan predictions about December mm-hmm. 21st, 2012. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's all wrapped up in this apocalyptic thinking. So could you oh, yeah. clear that up for us? I can certainly do that. Uh, The first thing to start with is what did the Mayans actually say about the day for Ahau Sri Kankin, 13000, the day that we call December 21st, 2012? Did they predict some kind of vast world transformation or anything like that? No, they didn't. 
They only mention the date once in one carving on one um, stone stele in a minor Mayan center at Tortuguero in what's now southern Mexico. And it's just mentioned in passing. You know, such and such day, for for Ahab three time came, 13000, and so on. Um, one of their gods is going to descend to, well, we don't know where, because that part of the stele was broken. And something else is going to happen. But it's nothing out of the ordinary. It's just a handful of things. And there are dozens, there are hundreds of other dates, even in that one site. Because the Mayans had this custom of referring things that were going on um, in, in their own times, the, the coronation of the king of a city-state, um, the birth or death of someone important, an important battle. You'll, you'll sometimes hear people insisting the Mayans were, were, the, were peaceful people. Um, <laughs> they weren't. They, they were like you know most rulers of city-states in, in that, kind of, that kind of setting. They, they were quite briskly engaged in warfare against each other for honor, for um, captives sacrificed to the gods, and various things like that. And so they would, but they would take these dates and they would relate them to important cycle endings and cycle beginnings in the, the complicated structure of, of Mayan time, which reaches for millions of years in the past to million years, millions of years in the future. And so this one reference to this date was just another cycle reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, prophecies, predictions of vast transformations of consciousness or planetary destruction or nothing. That whole business was actually invented out of whole cloth in the 1980s by Jose Arguelles, um, the New Age writer and, and, um, and well, New Age and writer. Terrence McKenna. Yeah. It was. Well, there was Terrence, yeah, no, Terrence McKenna was a slightly odder story because Terrence McKenna, of course, was one of those 60s psychedelic voyagers who thought they could discover the secrets of the universe by turning their brains inside out on very powerful psychedelic drugs. <laughs> And he, I mean, he, he, he was, he, I, I think he probably looked down on, on people like Timothy Leary who limited themselves to LSD. This is a guy who would take ayahuasca, which is one of the most powerful hallucinogens in the world, and mix it with magic mushrooms, take them both. And, you know, after they scraped him off the ceiling, then he'd say, wow, what a trip. <laughs> but now people of a certain generation among our listeners will probably, will probably be able to place, be fit this into their own experiences, um, shall we say, back a few decades. He had this one trip where he was on this, this particular mix where he felt time speeding up. Mm-hmm. And it was speeding up faster and faster. And so, in fact, he knew in the midst of that trip that it was going to reach infinite speed at some point in the future. And when it did so, time would stop. And that would be the end. That would be the omega point, the end of everything. Um, now, of course, as I say, a lot of our listeners um, of a certain generation will have had experiences like this, but most of us, after you know, we came down and took some B vitamins and things like that, simply went, wow, that was true. That was true. <laughs> McKenna was, a strong, was, was definitely made of stronger stuff, and so his idea was to figure out, okay, when is time going to come to an end? Long series of calculations later involving lunar calendars and the Yi Jing, he came up with the date in late 2012. So that's when he heard about the Mayan calendar and about the, there was going to be a rollover of the Mayan calendar, one of the many cycles in the calendar, in December 21st, 2012. So he went back and reworked his calculations so they came out to that date. <laughs> it's and, like putting yeah. the bull, bullseye around the arrow. Yeah. Very, very much so. But there, there was, what can one say? There was a certain amount of that that was fairly common in the, in the sort of 60s circles in which, in which McKenna ran. And so 
basically there was that, and that, that, that time wave zero theory was part of the rap that McKenna used to lay on audiences. And it may have been from that, it may have been from some combination of that and various other things that Jose Arguelles got the idea that the, the perfectly ordinary rollover of the 13 Bakhtun cycle in the Mayan calendar in 2012 was going to be the big date, the date where everything was going to change, where the frustrating, disappointing world we all know was going to be overwhelmed by some kind of vast transformation of consciousness or maybe swatted by a comet or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a pity that Arguelles died uh, this past year because it would be interesting to pin him down on that because I remember <laughs> when he was talking about the you know, his thing was the 13-month uh, year. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, I actually lived in the same town as, as Jose Arguelles for a few years. He, he and I were both in Ashland, Oregon for a while. And there were a lot of people talking about his, his 13-month calendar and how if we just got the right calendar in place, um, everything would be marvelous. <laughs> right. Which seemed a little strange to me, I have to admit. But, hey, you know, whatever. Um, it was an interesting calendar. Pause a moment. If you've just joined us, this is New Consciousness Review, and we are chatting with John Michael Greer about his book, Apocalypse Not. Ah, so tell me, the 2012 phenomenon mm-hmm. seems to be bringing together a lot of different apocalyptical threads from every uh, direction and making bedfellows of believers as disparate as fundamentalists and new agers. Mm-hmm. How do you think it has just um, coalesced on this date? Is it that they're all just jumping on this date or what? Well, it's partly that, I think. But the the 2012 thing has a huge advantage in that the Mayans didn't say anything about it. There isn't actually any specific prophecy there, so you've got a blank screen on which you can project anything. Uh-huh. And since the frequency of, of apocalyptic predictions tends to go up with level of social stress, whether it's, from, whether it's economic stress, whether it's cultural confusions, what have you. But the more stress a society is under, the more likely it is to get into this kind of apocalyptic thing. And in case our listeners haven't noticed, there's a lot of cultural stress going on right now in the United States mm-hmm. and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of people who are shopping for an apocalypse. There are a lot of people who want to believe that sometime later this year, all of their troubles are going to be taken away, whether that's taken away by, you know, the Space Brothers landing or, or you know, the Earth being destroyed. It, it, it really doesn't matter, it, but it does mean that you don't have to worry about 2013. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is the second coming of Christ just another version of it? I'm probably going to offend a fair number of, of our Christian listeners, but yes, basically. Mm-hmm. Um there, it's, it's really rather, it's really rather strange because if you look at the prophetic sections in the, in the New Testament, there's not that many of them. But if you look at the prophetic passages in the New Testament, they actually respond very well as a, a much more prosaic kind of prophecy. Um, in I think I think it's three of the Gospels. There, Jesus is sitting with some of his disciples up on the Mount of Olives, and he points out of the temple and he said, "You know, while some of you are still alive, that's going to be leveled to the ground." And you see all these people, all the villages and towns, half these people are going to be dead. 
and it's going to be a total catastrophe. When it hits, head for the hills. Do not even stop to grab your clothes. Just get out. <laughs> no, in fact, he was absolutely right. When the, Ro- when the Roman Jewish War broke out in 66 AD, which was well within the lifetime of some of his listeners, that's what happened. It was, a, it was a really, really messy time. And the temple was, in fact, flattened to the ground. And, and so, you know, it, an accurate prophecy. And he says, after that, the Son of Man will come into his kingdom. And, of course, it was after that that Christianity really began its spread through the ancient world. Then you go to the book of Revolution, Revelations, rather, you get uh, John of Patmos sitting there and producing what is, in, in the symbolic language of the time, a very clear description of the fall of the Roman Empire. You've got mm-hmm. this evil cities on seven hills, wink, wink, nod, nod, a city that rules the world and controls the wealth of the world also, and it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be flattened. There are going to be earthquakes. There are going to be plagues. There's going to be wars. There are going to be these, these nightmarish horsemen stampeding out of the east, slaughtering everybody in their path. And the Roman Empire, excuse me, the Babylon, we're going to call it Babylon because we don't necessarily want to end up like dead. A Babylon is going to fall, and what's going to replace it is going to be a Christian society. That's what the book of Revelation says, basically, if you read it in the context of the time, using the symbolic language that people use for prophecies in those days. And he was right. Mm-hmm. That's a stunning thing, because nobody in 70 AD was predicting the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, much less getting a fair number of the details right. And here's John of Patmos saying, you know, plagues and wars and, and horsemen from the east, and Rome falls, and a Christian society replaces it. Very impressive. But then you have people for most of 2,000 years saying, oh, no, that wasn't what it was about at all. It's about this supernatural event that's going to come sometime very, very soon. That's, that's rather fascinating that um, the, the basis of the book of Revelations, uh, upon which so much uh, bloodshed and, and ang- mm-hmm. angst has been uh, in the name of which it's been perpetrated, mm-hmm. is just a misunderstanding of what was a perfectly valid uh, political and possibly even inspired uh, prophecy. Mm-hmm. There's, there is actually a school of interpretation of prophecy called the Preterist School that argues that these are prophecies, they have already been fulfilled, and if you do, it's just dot, 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 point for point. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes perfect sense if you were a prophet in 70 A.D., let's say. You're not necessarily going to be hugely concerned about events in 2012. That's not going to be what your listeners need to know about right now. What they need to know, if they're members of the small, scattered Christian communities in the Roman Empire, is that Rome is not going to be there forever. They need to know that they're not going to be just ground under the boot heel over and over and over for the, for the rest of time. That if they just hang tough... Eventually, this, this you know, vast, tyrannical power that is making their lives miserable is going to be mashed, mm-hmm. and, which it makes perfect sense. Now, that, this, of course, that doesn't leave anybody a lot of excuses for feeding the apocalypse meme and, and you know, preaching about the rapture or what have you. So, no, so people, in, people generally across, the, across the, the entire range of Christian sects and denominations People ignore that possibility because they want their rapture. Tell us about the rapture. Um, 
you mention in your book that it actually um, was only put forth in the middle of the 19th century. That's correct. John Nelson Darby um, was an Irish clergyman, um, started out in what was then the Church of Ireland, which was the sort of canned import of the Church of England that that, um, was enforced in Ireland while while England ruled there. Um, He ended up schisming off on his own, starting what came to be known as the Plymouth Brethren. And one of the centerpieces of his whole theory was this idea that... um, at some undisclosed point in the future, um, there would be this, there would be the rapture. People would be suddenly scooped up supernaturally into the clouds to meet Christ in his glory. Now, a lot of this was probably a response to the last big round of prophecy, the one that ended with the Millerite fiasco in the 1840s, where, where you know, people had worked out this, this historical timeline dating from, from biblical times right up through the present, where every detail of the book of Revelations stood for some part of history. And 1844, October 22nd, there we are. That's going to be the second coming. And, of course, nothing happened. And so there was a lot of flailing around to find some new way to interpret Revelation. And Darby came up with this idea that um, the, the, the idea of the great parenthesis, the idea that the prophetic clock had stopped at a certain point in the early church, in the history of the early church, God had just kind of pushed the alarm button down, and it was just kind of sitting there, quivering, waiting through the years until it popped on again at some point in the future. Now, this is very convenient because you don't have to give any reason for explaining why it's why it's you know been two thousand years and something that was supposed to happen within the lifetime of people who knew Christ hasn't happened yet. You could just say, well, that's, that's because of the great parenthesis, and then the rapture will happen, we'll all be beamed up, uh, kind of, if you will, beamed up by St. Scotty into heaven. And then the rest of the world will get the, will get the stuffing pounded out of it, because they disagree with us. Uh, you, you make a really interesting point about the prophetic clock stopping. Um, the same thing happened in Judaism. I mean, we mm-hmm. used to have enough prophets uh, that, uh, you know, they were popping out of the ground like mushrooms after a mm-hmm. rain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they stopped. Mm-hmm. And the same as in Islam. There was the prophet mm-hmm. Muhammad, and that was it. And, and that was a, it was yeah. almost made, it was made either an object of heresy or an object of ridicule mm-hmm. to uh, put yourself forward as a prophet. Mm-hmm. Uh, until, you know, people like uh, John Smith. Yeah. Hmm. And you, you, you get people popping out saying, no, I am a prophet. And, and the, the thing is, there have been people claiming the prophetic mantle all along, and they usually end up starting their own sects, their own denominations mm-hmm. eventually. Whether it's, again, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons, for example, who claimed that the spirit of prophecy had descended once again on him, and he was able to find found quite a sizable church. Um, there were, in the Jewish tradition, there were... Oh, Shabtai Tzvi, yes. Yeah, for example. Um, there were a number of people who claimed that, that same status when, when they weren't simply defining themselves as the Messiah. Um, within Islam, there have been various people. Nobody actually wants to claim to be a prophet because Muhammad was, was the, the seal of the prophets, etc. But 
they, either they want to be the Mahdi, who is kind of the, 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 the Muslim Messiah, if you will, the, the one who is to come. Um, or, at any rate, they have some kind of special relationship with, with God, and so they can tell you what, what, what's really up. And Christianity has been crawling with them, of course. Mm-hmm. Whether, whether people um, redefining themselves to the second coming of Christ, or as God's second son, or uh, God's daughter, or it, it, it's been very colorful down through the years. And what about the Antichrist? Is he a new addition or part of the original cast? Well, the Antichrist goes back a long ways. Um, there, there, are some, there are some hints and nods and winks in Scripture that serve as a basis for him. Certainly by the early Middle Ages, there was, uh, there was enough, enough, enough of an idea going around that a guy named Adzo of Milk was able to write a biography of the Antichrist in advance. He basically took the standard gimmicks that were being used to write biographies of saints, they, they didn't. I mean, when you were writing a hagiography, a biography of a saint in the Middle Ages, you didn't do anything so mundane as actually do some research as to his life. You knew what kind of life a saint was supposed to have, and that's what you wrote. Mm-hmm. Because it was, it was spiritual truth, which is far more important than, than mere facts and figures. And so, Absolute Milk had the brilliant idea of standing the process on his head and saying, okay, well, we know what kind of life a saint should have what kind of life should the world's ultimate sinner have and that's what he wrote and so his bio of the antichrist you could still find elements of it in in current well things like the left behind series what's the guy's name nikolai carpathia um he, he, he's got absolute milk fingerprints all over him but the, yeah there's there's been a lot there's been a lot of of elaboration and assumption and ooh is there another bible verse we can somehow twist around to turn into a bit of antichrist bio here mm. yes people are very good at um uh, reading meaning into obscure verses. Um, if, yeah. if you've just joined us, we are speaking with John Michael Greer about his book, Apocalypse Not. You're listening to New Consciousness Review, and I'm Miriam Knight. Um, as we were saying, um, mm-hmm. obscure verses. Tell obscure us about verses. Nostradamus. Oh, man. <laughs> speaking of obscure verses... <laughs> Um, late medieval French um, is, is a challenging language for most people nowadays anyway. Um, <laughs> I wonder late why. medieval French poetry written to be as, as obscure as possible, it's a, it's a perfect mental ink blot onto which you can project anything. It's, and, and, if, this wasn't, if this wasn't enough, of course, people have been faking additional Nostradamus prophecies, additional quatrains, for centuries now. During the Second World War, the Allies and the Nazis were both busy churning out fake Nostradamus quatrains to support their own sides. <laughs> this has been going on for a very long time. The one problem, I mean, I, I, Nostradamus must have been a very interesting guy, but as far as his prophetic powers, well, um, there, one of the quatrains has, it runs, let me see if I remember, if I can get it. By memory, 1999, eighth month, the great king of, of terror descends from the heavens to, re- to resuscitate the king of Angoulême. Before and after, Mars reigns at his will. The great prophecy. I, I remember some people who managed to take some time away from panicking about the Y2K non-crisis to panic about that in, in, the, in the spring and early summer of 1999. And we're going, what's the great king of terror? Is it going to be a giant comet that's going to splat the earth? 
Mars reigns before and after his will. That means there's going to be lots of war, and so on and so forth. And the month in question rolled past very calmly, actually. And the great king of terror apparently decided to go somewhere else or decided that since there isn't a king of Angoulême these days, that he didn't need to be resuscitated or something. Nobody's quite sure what. But nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And that's actually been true of every uh, Nostradamus prophecy that has a date on it. If mm-hmm. the date has passed, nothing has happened. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so to all you would-be prophets out there, don't tie yourself to a date. Don't tie... Uh, let's, let's call this the Harold Camping rule. <laughs> after, after Harold Camping, who, who embarrassed himself uh, repeatedly last year, insisting that the rapture is, you know, what was it, May 21st was supposed yeah, to be then. But he comes from a long tradition uh, oh, yeah. of, 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 of failed prophecies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was kind of fascinated to read um, about the link between uh, fundamentalism and the Ku Klux Klan in the early oh, 1900s. Yes. Fundamentalism is actually not as, re- or not, not, a, not as recent as we tend to think. It's been around for quite a while. It was originally um, basically a product of social changes in the United States after um, the beginning of the 20th century, the very late 19th century, and it dates back ultimately to the guy we were talking about a little while ago, John Nelson Darby, who, who cooked up most of what now counts as modern fundamentalist theology. But it found a voice in the sort of American um, rural and small-town conservatism at the beginning of the 20th century. And it, it found its way at that time, as, as nowadays, it found very quickly a connection with the extreme right. In those days, that was the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. The Ku Klux Klan was a big deal, and it, it had actually collapsed um, not long after the, after the Civil War, but it was revived in 1915, and it had become a very big deal in much of the United States as a focus for uh, extreme right-wing ideas, not just um, racism of various kinds and anti-Catholic prejudice, but the, the whole range of reactionary ideas that was getting a, getting a footing elsewhere, in, say, in Europe, um, with guys with armbands and things. Mm-hmm. And so... So the Klan and the fundamentalism were very quickly established a very close rapprochement. You had, um, I forget how many of the, of the cloakards, the, the um, official lecturers who would travel from Clavern to Clavern, who were actually fundamentalist ministers. There were a lot of them. There was one, um, one guy whose name I'm not remembering, who was a very popular fundamentalist minister at that time, wrote a book, a rather popular book, titled Christ and Other Klansmen or Lives of Love. You will have a hard time finding a copy of that these days. It was a very popular book back in the day. Uh-huh. Well, you know, we're, we're seeing, uh, particularly in, in the political arena, mm-hmm. a resurgence of the, if you will, the fundamentalist meme. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I would love to get your take on what is it that is welling up from the heartland of America that provides fertile ground for this? Well, there's, there's a number of factors going on here. First of all, there's the, probably the most enduring cultural divide in, in American history is the split between the coast and the hinterlands. The coast has always been um, 
had an internationalist focus. It has always been relatively wealthy compared to the hinterlands. It has always been relatively skeptical about religious matters, um, arguably less patriotic. And then you have the hinterlands, which have always defined themselves as not like those guys out on the coast. You know, they were poor, more patriotic, more Christian, and who, who have historically taken a great deal of glee in finding out what the hot buttons are of the intellectuals out on the coast and pushing them. I'm quite convinced that the, the, the number of creation science museums that have been springing up in various parts of the country these days are precisely for that purpose. Because there is nothing that will get um, a modern American liberal more worked up than the whole, well, I mean, there's several things, but creation science is a great one. You can get you can produce, you can reduce people to spluttering indignation in no time flat, and that's actually the game that's being played here. <laughs> it's it, it's it's really quite amusing in its way. But the thing is, this has been the the, the resurgence of fundamentalism in in our time. Well, American American cultural and religious movements have about a thirty year lifespan. Uh-huh. They they last through a single generation. The 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 variety of ultra-conservative Christianity that has been um, in place in the United States now really took shape out of the Jesus movement of the 1970s. When people the, the what movement? The Jesus movement, the uh, Jesus uh-huh. freaks, the, uh-huh. the, the days of the, uh, what, was the what was the Bible? The, they had the, the way, the good news Bible. Um, Bibles basically rewritten in modern 60s slang and this kind of stuff. It was, it was a big movement. A lot of people bailed into it because they wanted to find a way out of the unsolved questions of the 1960s. <laughs> and, and that fed into this, the conservative resurgence in America in the late 70s, the, the rise of the, quote, born-again Christianity and so on. And and so you you had a situ- you went from a situation where in the '60s most really popular um, Christian denominations, most widely public Christian figures were actually on the liberal side, to a point in the 1980s where they'd gone all the way to the other side. Now, the, but the thing is, you, if you watch these movements, they have a very standard trajectory. We go well, the, again. The Jesus movement is a great example. Back in the '70s, it was. We're going to spread the love of Christ around the world and transform everything, and it'll be all loving and peaceful and beautiful. And then it doesn't work. And basically, people double down on whatever their ideology is. If they believe it more strongly, if they, if if they, if they're born again more completely, if they surrender themselves more totally, eventually, they end up waiting for an apocalypse to happen to rescue them from the contradiction because. Unless the rapture happens, they're going to have to deal with the fact that all their efforts haven't actually Christianized much of anything, not even their own behavior, and certainly not their own hearts. I I think you could transpose this same impulse to the Middle East. Uh, Very much so. Very much so. Where where you've had, as a reaction against the... um, against what I what you could without too much inaccuracy call American Empire. The expansion of American global power into the Middle East and with the, the fairly straightforward um, intention of turning it into a place where we get oil and they get the shaft. Um, and so people turned back to a, a to back to a very traditionalist or a reworked traditionalist Islam as a response to that. Uh-huh. Except it didn't work there again. 
And they're, they're working their way through this same process. There are elements of the New Age movement that have actually gone very much the same way in America, where you had, um, oh, I'm thinking of, of books like um, The Greening of America in the 1970s or The Aquarian Conspiracy in 1980, where the idea was that if we, if we um, embrace the values of the new and better age that we all know is going to come, we can actually manifest it, we can transform the world, we can create our own reality, create a beautiful new world for everyone. And now 30 years down the road, people are busy reading about David Icke's, you know, evil space lizards, mm -hmm. how, how, you know, George Bush is actually a reptile from another planet and the world is controlled by these evil elites. You know, how, how do people who are convinced they create their own reality get off on creating a reality that's dominated by evil space lizards? <laughs> and the, the answer to that is simply that while we all, we all participate in the creation of our own reality, we don't do it from scratch. Our reality also creates us. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily do what we want it to when, for example, the reality we're trying to create is, I'm going to get rich on real estate. <clears throat> and so, again, the way out of the contradiction is to wait for the apocalypse, to wait for... So, you know, God or Allah or, um, you know, the, the Space Brothers or somebody to pull the plug on the, on the world that we know and give us the world we think we want. You are the Grand Arch Druid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. Yes, that and 350 will get your cup of coffee. So, uh, but... It, it, in my limited understanding, um, it, it's a very earth-based yeah. affiliation, belief. Tradition. You, Tradition. You, you can use the word religion if you want. I know it's a very unfashionable word these days. But, it, you know, there's nothing actually wrong with the word. Mm -hmm. Now, do, do you feel that being rooted in the natural world gives you a... Uh, more clear-eyed view uh, where you kind of sit back and watch this panoply of history uh, roll by? Heck of a good question. Um, I, I think it's a more clear-eyed view, but of course there are plenty of other people who would disagree with me and insist that no, 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 I'm completely wrong for, for whatever reason. It, it so happens that the, the contemporary Druid traditions don't have apocalypses. It's uh, for, for whatever reason, the Celtic legends that came down to us that are kind of the, 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 the mythic framework that we use don't have, I mean, they have disasters. In the, the Book of Invasions, the old Irish, the old collection of Irish legends, Ireland did, you know, Edward Falls is getting overwhelmed by tidal waves. Uh, you know, the sea comes in and then washes out and, and there's nobody left alive and then it gets repopulated from somewhere else. Uh, but it, the world never ends. Mm -hmm. And there's never that sense of the world becomes whatever we, whatever our fantasies um, demand that it should be. So, you know, it's, it may be a little easier watching the cycles of nature, recognizing that spring turns to summer, summer to fall, fall to winter. Summer doesn't turn to uber summer or to uber uber summer, nor does the clock stop on midsummer's day and it's blue skies and sunlight forever. Um, maybe that's it. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think it's more... I, I have, I've, well, you, I think you called yourself a history nerd early in our talk, and that, that's a good description of me also. I've read a lot of history. I've seen, you know, 
through the through the binoculars provided by by historical writings. A lot of religions make a lot of claims, a lot of historical beliefs, um, whether it's the the Mayans or the Marxists or anybody. People convince themselves that the universe is going to give them what they want, and then reality sets in. Mm-hmm. My idea is, why don't we start with the reality and just you know sort of bracket the um, all all of the the fantasies? We can we can write stories about that if we want. So instead of waiting for Deus ex machina, mm-hmm. uh, focus on we are the ones we've been waiting for. Yeah. Or just roll up. Roll, we need to roll up our sleeves individually. We need to roll up our sleeves and get to work. There's a lot of good that can be accomplished in any age of history, including this one. And instead of waiting for the rapture, instead of waiting for instead of waiting for December 21st, 2012, why not make a better world now? <laughs> and but but of course that, that it takes work. Yes, it is, and it's hard work. It's not like just waiting, you know, waiting for the vast beams of cosmic enlightenment to descend. Uh, I, I meant to ask you, you mentioned the rapture. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us what this thing, the singularity, was supposed to be. Ah, uh, yes. Well, the, the singularity, it's, that it's, it's a complex idea that's been hijacked in, a, in, in recent years by a, by a particular thinker. The idea of the singularity, I think, was invented by Werner Vinge, the science fiction writer, and it, it basically argues that there's a point in the development of technology at which technology becomes so powerful that it becomes impossible to predict what the future is going to hold. It's an interesting thesis. I think there's reason to think that he's wrong, but we'll see. But what happened was that idea got sort of picked up and reworked and to basically loaded with more and more apocalyptic fantasy. And the, the, the currently popular version of it is, is by Ray, one by a guy named Ray Kurzweil, who is a computer scientist, who argues that what's going to happen in the year, what was it, 2040? 2042, something like that. Um, by that year, we'll have been able to, com- to create computers that are not only intelligent and conscious, but are super intelligent, are more intelligent than we are. Those computers will thus be able to design even better computers, and so on in this, this very quick exponential curve that will produce infinitely intelligent computers that are as smart as God. And once these computers come to exist, of course, they'll know how to do everything, and therefore, um, they will grant us everything we can ever imagine if they don't just decide to wipe us out first anyway. And this is not meant to be a science fiction novel? No, no. This, this, uh, Kurzweil is saying this with a straight face. That, you know, these, these, these infinitely intelligent computers. To think about, oh, he, he also goes on, if, assuming they don't simply decide that humanity is a blight on the cosmos and exterminate us, he's convinced that they will, for example, teach us how to upload our consciousness into robot bodies, which will now go zooming off into outer space, okay? Mm-hmm. This is the rapture in science fiction drag. <laughs> okay. So the infinitely intelligent computer is Jesus, of course. The uh, robot bodies are the glorified bodies of the elect out of Christian theology. The zooming outer space is heaven. We all rise up into heaven and live, and live immortal lives in, the, in these glorified robot bodies. It's geek rapture. And you, you can actually produce a very nice um, hissy fit 
among the, the people in the computer scene who, who like Kurzweil by describing it in those terms, because, of course, most of them have, have nothing but contempt for fundamentalist Christians, even as they cling to a belief system that's essentially indistinguishable. <laughs> you mentioned um, in your book another very funny thing, um, prediction of, by Charles Fourier. Tell Fourier. us about that. Oh, man. There was, if any prophet deserved to be, to have his prophecies fulfilled, I, you know, we, we could be so fortunate. Unfortunately, this did not happen. Charles, Charles Fourier was a Frenchman. Um, he lived around the same time, roughly through the same lifespan as Napoleon. And he, but he, he was a traveling salesman by trade. And he spent all his off hours working out what has got to be the most bizarre set of, of philosophical, spiritual, prophetic beliefs in human history. It's just giddy. Um, he was convinced that he, well, a lot of 19th century thinkers were convinced of this. He was convinced that his ideas were the turning point in, in his history, not only the history of humanity, but the history of the entire solar system. And that once people started adopting his harmonial philosophy, the entire universe would be transformed. Um, he, he was convinced, for example, that once a certain number of people, this sort of hundredth monkey principle goes back a long ways, as you see, a certain number of people bought into the harmonial philosophy, vast rains of cosmic citric acid would descend from the heavens and turn the oceans into lemonade. Uh, just citric acid or sugar too? I, he, I don't know the formulation of cosmic citric acid. <laughs> But the, the oceans would be turned to lemonade. There would be four, uh, four spare moons, which, um, ditch, which bailed out on the Earth many, many eons ago because they were ashamed to be seen uh, with a planet that didn't accept Fourier's philosophy. Those moons would come back, so we'd have five moons rotating around the Earth. And um, all beasts of prey would suddenly change their stripes, so to speak. And for example, lions would turn into cuddlesome vegetarian anti-lions. And... The, and since, since, of course, the harmonial philosophy, the basis of the harmonial philosophy is that all human activity is motivated by passional attraction. And if you, if you simply figure out how to harness passional attraction, it solves all the world economic problems because everyone's passionately attracted to doing the things that will produce wealth for all. And then other than brief periods of work guided by passional attraction, people will spend all their time feasting and having orgiastic sex. <laughs> <laughs> While they watch the moons rise and rise and rise also, and rise and, and, and sip free lemonade sitting on the seaside next to, you know, cuddling up next to an anti-lion. Okay. Um, well, so much, is, so much for apocalypse. Now, what, what would be your suggestion for, movie, for surviving these, quote, end times, unquote? For surviving the end times, the first thing to do is remember that they're not end times. And step back and say, well, yes, and Harold Camping made the same claim. Yeah. The second thing that I'd suggest is um, remember that, you know, that each, our own end time is going to come for each individual one of us sooner or later, and try to do some good in the world before that happens. And you know, I mean, these basic tenets that all philosophers have taught, that all wise people have taught down through the ages, they're not, they, they have not stopped being relevant. They remain just as important now as they ever were. And they're a much better guide to life than this belief that the universe is about to hand you a, a, a fantasy island that will last forever. Absolutely. 
Well, we're going to have to leave it there. We've been talking to John Michael Greer, author of Apocalypse Not, and you can follow his blog on the archdruidreport.blogspot.com. So, John Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been enormous fun. And next week, our guest will be Cynthia Sloan, an amazing, talented psychic intermediary who has just finished a very intriguing play of conversations among very famous dead people that were recorded just as she channeled them. I do hope you'll join us. We're going to close our show with a track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. They're a growing group of musicians who use music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. This week we're featuring Already Home by Jan Garrett and J.D. Martin.
was Already Home, the title song from the album by Jan Garrett and J.D. Martin. It's a sumptuous recording on the up-tempo end of the spectrum, featuring some of Nashville's finest artists, master musicians having fun. In it, Jan and J.D. relax into their musical roots of folk, country, gospel, and jazz, with lyrics refreshingly inspired from a broad spiritual perspective. Feel good music with depth and integrity. Their website is garrettmartin.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T hyphen martin.com. For more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today. To discover more fascinating books, films, authors, and events, check out our website at ncreview.com where you can sign up for our free newsletter. You can leave comments for us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ncreview. And if you enjoyed our show, I hope you'll tell your friends. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>